Amen. Now give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word for His people. Psalm 72, a Psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall call him blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let us pray. Our God and King, be exalted in the reading and in the preaching of your word. Grant us your Holy Spirit here and now to perceive, to understand, to grasp and believe the power of the resurrected, ascended and enthroned King of Kings. And then to live and walk accordingly. Bless now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, um, if you were asked what are the most important historical events in the history of mankind, I don't know if you ever were asked that in a list in a history test, what are are the five most important events in the history of mankind, you you might go in in any of a number of directions, the the end of particular wars or um, the the, uh, invention of, of certain uh, things that changed the, the course of the world in a number of different ways, the discoveries of great continents, of new continents, and all kinds of things. Probably certainly central, though, if we really began to think, and as Christians, it would be the, the incarnation of Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas, and his crucifixion, which we remember on Good Friday, and of course, his resurrection on Easter. But one of the most neglected historical days would be the day of his ascension, of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Thursday was 40 days after Easter, this last Thursday that was Ascension Day, and it is the tradition of the church then to celebrate, if not on that day, then on the following Sunday, Ascension Sunday. Forty days after his resurrection, according to Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended in, in front of his disciples up into the clouds and into heaven. This is the day of the great coronation where Jesus Christ, the second Adam, took his rightful place at the throne of God. As was prophesied, he's seating at, sitting at God's right hand at the Father's pleasure. Psalm 110 says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He remains there seated at God's right hand till all of his enemies are made a footstool. 
It signaled the transition from the old heavens and earth to the new heavens and earth. The first Adam had been the king of the world underneath the lordship, uh, uh, underneath God the Father. He had been the, the, uh, the, the, reign, the one who was to take dominion of all the earth. He failed. The second Adam has come. The second Adam has now reigning at God's right hand. A man rules the world. A man rules all of heaven and all of earth as God intended, and his name is Jesus. This second Adam then took his rightful place there, and we transitioned at that moment. We really transitioned from the old heavens and earth to a a complete new way of living, of being human. 2 Corinthians 5 attests to this, where Paul writes, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You you see, you sit here, believer, you sit here, Christian, um, as a Christian in a new world, in, in in a brand new way that this world can be because Jesus Christ died for sinners, because Jesus Christ took care of the curse, because Jesus Christ has established his throne in his kingdom, and now we live in the midst of that, manifesting and spreading that kingdom upon the earth. The Son of Man was given, he was given the kingdoms of the world when the Father said, as recorded in Psalm 2, ask of me, the Father says, to the Son, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is Ascension Day. And in days when it is truly hard to see this, to see this in the world, to see this in your home, to see this in your life, that Jesus Christ reigns, that he is King of kings, that he is Lord of lords, that all of it is his, and that, that not only are you to act like it, but he already is acting like it. In these days when it's hard to see that, a psalm like this is wonderful to meditate on. Because what we are to do is, is to see with eyes of faith, not with eyes of our flesh, but with the eyes of faith, what God is up to. What is the story that God has been writing? And where are we in that story? Psalm 72 is a coronation hymn. It was a hymn, it was probably used regularly when, when kings ascended to the throne, but it was, it was probably written for or by, or maybe both, by, um, Solomon. Um, it, it's, the, it's, it's called the hymn of the son of David, and it's attributed to or by Solomon. And while Solomon had a good run, at least at the start, he cer- certainly did not fulfill all that was promised of David's son in this, in this psalm at all. He didn't come close. So what happened? Did he fail? Was, was God's word, was, it, was there too much being promised? Or are we to understand as we see throughout the scriptures that, that these kings, these prophets, these men of God were oftentimes shadows, pictures, foreshadowings of the one who was going to come? This is what, is, this is what we have here. 
So, both in the prophecies given to David and to Solomon, recorded here in this psalm, we see Jesus as the one who fulfills it. Jesus is the greater David, and Jesus is the greater son of David. He's declared to be the son of David in the very beginning of the Gospels, Matthew 1.1, where it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Everything, it's like, it's like as the new covenant, as the book of the new covenant, the book of the New Testament opens to us, what, what, we're being, what we're being introduced to is, let me show you now who truly is the son of David and the son of Abraham and has all of the promises, all the promises that have been given to him, all the prophecies made about who would be the son of David, who would be the seed of Abraham, are going to be fulfilled and completely fulfilled in this one, the Lord Jesus. This psalm is all about what the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne of God declared. This psalm is about what the coronation of Jesus Christ declared. You, you, as you read through the psalm, you should imagine being in a great throne room and watching the new king, the victorious king, arriving in his thr- at his throne, where his father a- announces to, for him to have a seat at the throne to now rule with all authority over all of heaven and earth, and you are invited to sing at that coronation. That's what Psalm 72 is. An invitation to sing at the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, forever, an invitation to renew that coronation, to renew that, that hailing of his power. Crown him with many, many crowns. Here's a quick overview of the text. This psalm contains a description of an exalted king and the blessings of his reign. It will be abundant in righteousness, verses 1 through 4. There will be steadfast reverence and an abundance of peace, verses 5 through 7. We'll we'll have uh, ongoing worship and reverence and uh, recognition and, uh, uh, and submission to this king. And with that, from the Prince of Peace, we will have an abundance of peace with God and one another. The expanse of his reign will be universal. It will be over all of the earth, not just a portion, not just a little stamp of Palestine, not, not just wherever um, some people go and, and claim that this is for Jesus, but his, his, his uh, reign is over all of the earth. He will be a beneficent and kind ruler. It will be good to have him as king. It will be merciful to have him as king. It will be full of grace to have him as king. His reign will continue endlessly. It will never, ever end, verses 15 through 17. And then the psalm then concludes with an explosive doxology and a concluding postscript closing the second book of Psalms. There's actually, the psalms were organized most likely by Ezra, the psalms as we now receive them, and they're broken up in five books, they're called. And so that last verse that I read, verse 20, is not, is not so much about this psalm, but about closing the, the second book of Psalms, where he writes, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, when he puts that there. So this is, um, this is a, a quick overview, then, of the text. As a coronation hymn, think of this also, as a coronation hymn, this is also a blessing and a prayer to and for the one being crowned. Look again at verse 15. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually. What kind of prayer? Well, long live the king. Long live King Jesus. Long reign and perfectly reign King Jesus. That's to be our prayer. We we are to pray to God the Father for the ongoing and continual reign, victorious reign of Jesus Christ. Well, that's exactly what Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You were taught to pray to God 
And you were taught to pray to God, God, I want your kingdom to come and I want your will to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. As though Jesus needed to know that? Jesus himself gives a prayer. I mean, there, there's already the weirdness about prayer that you can't go to God and ask and give him a prayer for, anything that, for any of your needs that he doesn't already know about. And there's that whole issue about figuring that out. What, what is going on with, with all of that? But, but even more importantly, is it's not just asking for your needs. You're supposed to go to God as a vice regent. You've been invited as a counselor to Jesus. Jesus, here's what I think you should do. We are to go before him. When we, go, when we gather together and we pray in Jesus' name to God the Father, what we are doing is we're asking God the Father in the name of Jesus as though the Son was, was saying it to the Father because we are the body of Christ. And we say to the Father, in Jesus' name, rule the world. Save it all. Make, make your victory more and more manifest. Start right here in my heart, right here in my life right here in my household, right here in my, in my marriage, right here with my children right now, right here in our church, right here in our community, right here in the school, right here in the schools where we're raising up our children, right here, do this, Father, in the name of Jesus. He tells us to go, and, and in the coronation, in the coronation of Jesus, your king, we're, what we're to hear are the prayers of the saints telling the king what he should do. Because he's invited us to come in as his counselors to do so. So let's take a look at this in in sections here and notice some of the nature and characteristics of the rule of King Jesus. And I want you to keep in mind, um, first of all, I want you to try to keep out of your mind that what we're talking about is something that is just going up in heaven in some kind of ethereal way and has nothing to do with feet on the ground right here. Um, There there are lots of passages that make very clear that the reign of King Jesus is going on and the work and the spread of his gospel is taking place on earth in real time. Well, that's why you're here. (laughs) That's why you're here. And he's he's not interested in a simple remnant. He's not interested in, in a smattering of folks all over the world. He wants nations. God said to him, ask of me and I will give you the nations. And so Jesus asked for the nations. And then before his, right before his ascension, he turns to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's all mine. Go tell them. Go disciple them. Go teach them. Go teach nations everything I've commanded you and all the inhabitants of the nations while you're at it. And, and this psalm, one of the things the psalm talks about is how kings and nations will follow will bow, will bring their riches to the, this king of kings. So verses one, and, one, and, 1 through 4, though, we begin with the righteousness of his reign. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This king reigns in righteousness because, of course, he is righteous. It's, it's, not even, it's not as though Jesus has to make a decision. He is righteousness. He reigns in righteousness because he is righteous. His justice shows no favorites. Even the poor, we're told in this passage, are regarded with equity. He's not looking for bribes. He's not trying to get in with the in crowd. He, he, is, he is not impressed with your riches. He's not impressed with your power. He's not impressed with your reputation. And he, he, he stoops low to all those who in contrition call out to him. If, if you go to God and, and try to prove to him 
that he should answer your prayers or make your life better because, and then you give a list of things that you've done or haven't done, he is not interested. Or the power that you sway, he's not interested. If you go to him and you ask for anything in his name, if you ask for anything in his name, out of mercy and grace, he hears your prayer. He responds with mercy and grace. And he brings and lifts up those who are in, uh, in, in, terrible, in terrible situations time and time again. We'll get into that a little bit more also. Now here's, uh, in his sovereign reign, the most vulnerable are saved and the oppressors are crushed. We have some alerts going on in. <laughs> He's crushing somebody right now. The most vulnerable are saved and the oppressors are crushed. In Christ's reign, he not only rules in righteousness, he makes people righteous. This is, this is something different than all the other kings. <laughs> well, just everybody take your phone out. Check the scores of the games. <laughs> Notice this. Um, we long for, you know, you, we long for a right ruler. We long for somebody who is in a place of authority, who is in a place to rule over a, a people, a nation, and to do so with righteousness. What's amazing is that Jesus not only rules in righteousness, he makes us righteous. He makes us righteous, granting us perfect righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is what our king does. Romans 3, 26, demonstrating at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's, it's never that Jesus did not care about your sin. It's never that Jesus overlooks any sin. It's that Jesus dies for it. He pays the price for it. Forgiveness is, is free for us, but it's not cheap. It's all taken care of by the blood, by the work of the righteous king who began, began his reign by going to the cross for our sins to buy, to purchase us. Also in verse 3, we, we see the mountains. That would be the, like the greatest authorities. Throughout the scriptures, the mountains refer to the, the great authorities of the land. And the mountains the, will bring peace. And then even the smallest hills, the, the little hills, the smallest jurisdictions will do so as well by this righteousness. In other words, in other words because of this righteous king, not only does he make us righteous, but then the rulers that he places, and then even in the smallest details, uh, things are done honorably. Things are done with love for neighbor. Things are done with the, the betterment of people in mind and to the glory of God. This is the kingdom that Jesus established, the righteousness of his reign. And then, then also the reverence or fear and peace also of his reign. Look at 5 through 7. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. So here we see, again, there's a... There's a picture here that we're not talking about up in heaven, but throughout all generations, from children and children's children to a thousand generations, this is what we're experiencing. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth in his days. The righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. So his, will, his rule will be so sure, so firm, so unchanging, that there will be constant honor and fear paid to the king day after day over generations. 
Verse 5, but this fear, this, this fear, this reverence, the kind of fear that we are to have for God produces peace, brings forth a rest. It's, it's, it's almost paradoxical, but in, in our fear of God, rightly fearing God brings you into perfect peace. If you are anxious about anything, one of the reasons you're anxious about anything is because with regard to that anything, you don't fear God. You don't fear God. You either think, I'm sure he's, he doesn't have control of this, or you're afraid of where he's taking it, and you're not believing that he's good and that his purposes for you are good. Or you don't want the long story. You just want the short story. Let's just make it all perfect right now, and you don't believe that it's good for you to be disciplined, good for you to go through a process of sanctification, good to be made more and more godly by his means. You don't fear God. Our God is too small. Far too often. If you're anxious, whatever you're anxious about, the, the reason you're anxious is your God is too small and you're not afraid of him. But if you fear God, if you understand who this is, who is reigning over all of heaven and earth and every aspect of your life, that, that kind of fear, a fear that is brought, wrought by faith, a fear that is wrought by faith produces an abundance of refreshing peace, like the rain like that, yeah. Like the rain pouring out on the grass. Like it's, if, it is, it's refreshing, it's produce, it produces, it is, it's glorious and good. This is what this kind of fear produces. From that righteous fear, peace endures abundantly upon the land. The Prince of Peace is ruling, and the peace of God, as Paul writes in Philippians, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In Romans, Paul writes, therefore, having been justified by faith, having been righteous, granted that righteousness, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with the holiest one. You are reconciled to the holiest one. Revelation 1, 4 and 5 in, in that great opening um, benediction, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is the fear and peace that comes from his reign. We live in a lie of today of secular neutrality. We live in a lie today where we, we think a secular humanism is a, a, a non-religious way of keeping the, everybody together. Let, come on, let's just coexist. Put the bumper sticker on. We can all get along, right? This is a lie. This is a lie from the pit. There is no such thing as neutrality, secular neutrality. Secularism is idolatry. It is idolatry. It is another God. It is another system and another worldview, which is, by definition, antithetical to the teachings of the scriptures. Because secular humanism teaches there, there is no God, or if there is a God, if you want to believe in God in your own private world, that's just fine, but do not impose him upon anyone else. And Jesus says, I'm king of kings and lord of lords. The two cannot go together. See, you can't have both. It is completely antithetical. And that means that Jesus is Lord over the mayor, the county council, the governor, our federal government. He's Lord over all nations. He's Lord over the whole world. Kings and governments, 
pastors and denominations, fathers and families, businesses and all institutions, every institution of man has an obligation to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and to submit to the standards and directions of God's laws in every station of life. Abraham Kuyper so famously is quoted over and over again saying, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not exclaim, mine. That is mine. That also, that's mine too. Any aspect of your life, and if we're going to live as a Christian, if you're going to live as an honest Christian, then every aspect of your life, you should hear your Lord and Savior, Jesus, say, mine. That relationship you have with your spouse, that relationship you have with your children, that relationship you have with your boss, with your employees, that relationship you have within the church, that relationship you have with unbelievers, the things that you own, all of it. Jesus says, mine. And here's what you do with it. And then he gives us instructions. All of it is his. He doesn't ask you if you want to. He doesn't ask if you would like to make him Lord. He declares that he is Lord. He does not ask if, if, if he could be Lord of that part of your life. He declares to you that he is Lord of that part of your life. So, the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne was not only an insurrection of the devil's kingdom, which it was. Uh, Paul says in, in, in Colossians 2 that, that at the cross, at the, cro the work of the cross was not a work of defeat. The work of the cross was a work of victory. And the work of the cross, Paul says, at that point, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what? In the cross. Jesus Christ ascending to the cross is the first step of his ascension into heaven. But it's not only that. It's not only just that insurrection there. Jesus has bound the strong man, as he says in, in, in the Gospels, and he is plundering his goods. He's gone on and he's taking out all of the devil's goods. That includes you. He has grabbed you and he has redeemed you and he has brought you out and his stuff and your stuff. And, he's do, and he does so by bestowing his righteousness with free grace upon miserable sinners like me, thereby making peace with his enemies. I was an enemy of God and God struck me down upon a rock that saved me, upon a rock that transformed me. That's what a Christian declares. I was an enemy of God. And the sinfulness, my wickedness in and of itself was just by nature who I was because I was a son of Adam. And Jesus, in his grace and forgiveness, he beat me up. He grabbed me, pulled me out. He rescued me. Sometimes we come kicking and screaming, but always once he gets a hold of us, with that ir irresistible grace, that work of the Spirit, we love him. We come to realize, we come to our senses, and we understand what it means to be forgiven and without shame and without condemnation. It's glorious. Because King Jesus rules. And that's here for you right now. Returning back to the text here, in, in verses 8 through 11, we see the expanse of his reign. He shall have dominion 
also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah would pick this up in, in his prophecy as well. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Um, now for Solomon, the boundaries of his land was the, was the original promised land. But under the greater son of David, the covenant promises to Abraham come true. What would happen from Abraham? Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation, God says to Abraham. I will bless you and I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse him who curses you. You hear the words of protection of this reign. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families. Paul would pick up on that in Romans chapter 4. He would tell us that the promise that Abraham would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't earn it in any way. We enter into that with the same faith. We are sons of Abraham we are, we, when we have the faith of Abraham, believing what God said, believing that the whole earth is under the rule and authority of the son of David. What this, this passage says is that they will turn and bow in glad submission or lick the dust in defeat, but every knee will bow. And Paul would say, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the work of his reign. Note here the conversion of kings also and kingdoms in verses 10 through 11. It's a little bit hard to, to, to find or to know the geography, the full geography that, um, that Solomon or the writer of this psalm has in mind. But Tarshish and the Isles and Sheba and Seba all seem to represent northern Africa, Spain, all down the Arabian Peninsula. Basically, all around, just kind of go around Israel and in, in every direction. All of those places are going to have kings and nations who bring their riches, who bring their honor to the king, to the king of kings. There's a sense of extensiveness or expansion, ongoing expansion that's going on with these kinds of words. This is not a description of what is going on in heaven then, or only after his second coming. This is our age. This is the gospel age of hope. We live in a time of great expectation. Or do we? No, I'm not so sure the church does live in a time of great expectation. And, and, and that's something that we need to repent of. We need to let the word of God deal with our expectations. Because according to Scripture, we live in an age of great expectation and hope. We live in a, in a time of great expectation of the growing, expanding, pressing, and victorious reign of Jesus over the whole earth. In our tumultuous days, we must remember that Jesus did not come in order to try to save the world. If only the uncooperative world would have him. But of course they wouldn't. No, he came to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, and then John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That was God's intention, a saved world. God's intention was a saved world. 1 John uh, 4 
14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Not potential Savior of the world, not Savior of the world if elected, not Savior of the world if they choose, but Savior of the world because God declares it. He will be satisfied with nothing less than a saved world. And so God the Father says to him, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a foothold. And then that is, that is recorded in, um, in, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that, that Christ must reign at God's right hand until all of his enemies are, are made a footstool. And then he returns to deal with the final enemy, and only the final enemy, death. So he expects, the, the scriptures continue to press upon us that the reign of King Jesus right now in time and space is a reign of victory, a reign of ongoing expansion. Look, if we don't believe in, in the ongoing victorious work and expansion of the kingdom of God, why in the world do we send missionaries anywhere? We send missionaries, in fact, the history of missions movements throughout the Christian church always comes out of a glorious sense of optimism and expansion that God is, about to, God is going to go take this. Let's go. This is the work of a victorious uh, king and an expanding kingdom. Finally, Revelation 7, after the vision that John has of the 12 times 12,000, the 144,000 that he sees, this complete picture of, of, of those who are saved, then it says that he turned and he saw and he heard something else. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Everyone standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are not texts of universalism that every last person is saved. Even in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire is filled. There are those who are cast into utter damnation. But it is a gospel of the, the salvation of the world, of the expansion of the, of the church, of an ascension coronation of the Lord Jesus, who then reigns now in, in, in full and complete victory. And then we also have this glorious, these glorious words, though, of a kind and benevolent and protecting God. Reign. 12 and 14. For he will deliver the needy when he cries the poor also, and him who has no helper. The, the ultimate, uh, omnipotent, omniscient, infinite God hears the smallest cry of the most needy. That's glorious. He will spare the poor and needy, will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall they be their blood in his sight. What does he mean here? Two things. First, the reign of Jesus Christ through the church has been the largely untold story of benevolence and peace and health and prosperity and education in the world. Look carefully at the history of the work of the church over these 2,000 years, and you will see everything from scientific discoveries to the care for the poor and the needy. Um, there's a glorious book that George Grant wrote about the fight against abortion that goes all the way back to the first century abortion and infanticide, how the church was the one taking in the needies. Hospitals, where do hospitals come from? They come from the church. Where is the opportunity for the advancement of education for everyone, men and women, the church? Where, where, is, where are the, the afflicted really cared for and, not, and, and caste systems put down? The church. 
Where's slavery abolished? It's through the preaching of the gospel. This, this has been the work of the church over the ages. Great book to read on this, if you'd like to sometime, is, um, is a book uh, entitled, uh, I have it here, How Christianity Changed the World by um, Alvin Schmidt. Read it sometime. It's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful reminder of the work of the church in the power of the grace of God over centuries. Where societies have advanced in justice, fighting disease, helping the poor and outcast and such, it has been due in large part to the influence of the gospel and the church. But secondly, understanding this passage in the context of God's sovereignty over the lives of his people guarantees either deliverance from oppression or grace to sustain and conquer through trials and tribulations. So you see here both in this passage that he will redeem their life from oppression and violence, which means they might find themselves in repression and violence. He hears the cry of the poor and the needy and delivers often in many ways. And sometimes he does it, not because his arm is too short, but because he promises grace to walk with you through the tribulation and the trial for better purposes. In um, Romans 8, this is, where we, this is where Paul gets to in Romans 8, where he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He closes that passage by saying, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How, how can that be true if, if there's going to be bloodshed, if there's going to be repression, if there's going to be violence in your life? How's that gonna, how, how is that true then? Paul wanted to know. Paul needed to understand. Paul, who was afflicted um, by Satan uh, under God's um, decision, is, is afflicted, and he cries out to the Lord to be delivered from his affliction in 2 Corinthians. He writes, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And God said these words to me, Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you want to be perfect in strength? Well, then he's going to take you through weakness to get there. He's going to take you through weakness to get there. Paul gets a hold of this. He understands this, and he says, I think one of the most ridiculous statements he says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How could you say that in a world if you did not believe that Jesus Christ was reigning on the throne in time and space right now? sovereignly administering his good grace in every affliction, in every trial, in every situation that any of his believers find themselves in. How could you say those words that Paul says if you did not believe that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now? You can't. But he is. And so we celebrate Ascension Sunday. And finally, 15 through 17 and he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like the grass. Like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. 
His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. The first Adam was given dominion over the earth and told to take dominion out of it. He blew it. The second Adam has been given dominion over the earth and has told his disciples now to go and disciple the nations. Tell them, I am Lord. He is succeeding and he will succeed. There is promised a growing abundance of blessing through the reign of Jesus until, as it says in verse 17, all nations shall call him blessed. All nations, not just people from all nations, not a smattering, not a collection, but all nations are going to call him blessed. And to this end, Jesus has been crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, 16. What are we to do with a psalm like this? It's like like the church doesn't know what to do with stuff like this. We don't know what to do. You're supposed to sing it. You're supposed to sing it to God. You're supposed to sing it to yourself. You're supposed to sing it to one another. You're supposed to believe it. You're supposed to meditate on it. You're supposed to apply it. That's what you're supposed to do with this. We must believe it and sing it. There have been times in the history of the church where we believed that Jesus was Lord of the whole earth, but that is not the case in much of the church today. Today, the modern church acts as though we are not the church militant. We are not the church triumphant. No, we are the church defeated, the church irrelevant. But God in his kindness continues to rule and continues to sanctify us. Once again, he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask. Would you like to be the church triumphant and militant? Would you like to be the church irrelevant? Well, I think I'd rather be irrelevant than to just kind of leave us alone, God. Because if we're the church militant and we declare that Jesus is Lord over every square inch, we're going to get in trouble. And he says, my grace is sufficient. And I want you to go and disciple the nations. And I want it to take place over generations. Through your life and your children and your children's children and as I have promised to a thousand generations. God in his kindness continues to rule over this church in the 21st century, right now, here and now. He's ruling over this church. And he continues to sanctify us. He continues to cleanse us. He continues to mature us, to build us up. And to those he grants faith in these promises, those will shout the blessed name of Jesus over the whole earth. And so now maybe verse 18 and 19 makes a little more sense. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's our prayer. Fill the earth with your glory. Fill the earth with your glory, Lord. To those he grants faith, those will be able to walk with courage and faith in darker days. So, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen to this phrase, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your work is not in vain in the Lord. If you're doing work in the name of Jesus, I promise you, In the name of God, I promise you, it is not in vain. Never. Ever. Jesus reigns, King of kings, Lord of lords. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. 
Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Father, let this be our prayer. Let it be a prayer we sing to you, a prayer we believe, a prayer that with eyes of faith we see you answering as you extend the kingdom of your Son to the ends of the earth. Amen and amen. Please stand. <clears throat>